to tonight's study. We're starting the survey of the Old Testament. I anticipate that this will be a 16-week course. It may go, it, it could go longer. It certainly won't go any shorter. And I'll let you know, I have the first eight weeks, the syllabus done, and I will have that posted online so you can actually see it, okay? Now, with that, let me just explain the reason that I have for this course, and I, I want to just convey to you the aspirations that I have for you in this study. The first is, I know many of you are big-time students of God's Word, and many of you are going to be having Bible studies of your own. And my prayer is, is that I'm going to be able to help aid your future Bible studies and help equip you to understand the Old Testament even better. Uh, second, I want to help all of us to see the plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation in an even clearer manner, to show you that Messianic salvation has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the third big one is I want to show you that as we dig deeper into the Scriptures, and we're going to, so what we're going to do is we're going to be taking a survey, but we're going to take a lot of pit stops where we go very deep into the Scriptures. And when we dig deep, you're going to see that the Scriptures are more glorious than we often even realize. Okay, and we'll be starting in that endeavor really next week in Genesis 1.1. So those are my goals. That is my prayer. And again, I look at myself as a servant of you. This is your class. And if there's anything I can do to you know, make the teaching more easily understood or to help you in some way, let me know. What I'll do is I'll lecture, and I'll probably go an hour and 10 to an hour and 20. The remainder of the time is questions and comments and so forth. This week is a big one because I'm trying to get something of what's called canonicity in 25 minutes. So let me explain now where we're going to be going this evening. We're going to be talking about the preliminary issues, that is, what is the Old Testament? We're going to be defining that the Old Testament is exactly what we have in our Protestant Old Testament Bibles. In other words, I'm going to be refuting the notion that the Catholics are correct, that the apocryphal book should be included in the Old Testament. Okay, but I'm also going to get into a little bit of how the canon came together. So that's where we're going to be heading. Now, let me show you one other thing about our approach in this study. And I want to do this every time we're together in the scriptures. The first goal that we have when we're in the Old Testament, in any passage for that matter, in the New Testament, we want to perform exegesis. That is taking out of the text what's actually there rather than reading in our own meaning. Okay, in light of the meaning of the text... We want to apply it to our lives. We want to ask, what should we believe? And in light of what we should believe, how should we act upon it? And the third thing in this uh, this study that we're going to be engaged in, we want to look at the apologetic value of all of the passages. In other words, how how do these texts that we're looking at prove our presuppositions? Now, you're probably wondering, what are our presuppositions? Well, I'm glad you asked. Played along. Here's our presuppositions. The first is that God exists and is the only eternal being. That is, he is the only non-contingent being. He exists and has created all other things. The second presupposition is that the Bible is God's inerrant word to us. And in light of those two presuppositions, number three then follows, we ought to believe and act upon what the Bible teaches. So, for instance, next week we're going to get into Genesis 1.1. I'm going to show you the cosmological argument and how only Genesis 1.1 in the worldview associated with the biblical understanding of Genesis 1.1 fits with both the laws of science and the laws of logic. And that's going to prove to us our first presupposition that, yes, God exists and he's the only eternal being. Okay? 
All right, so that is what we want to do every time we're in the Scriptures. And sometimes, to be honest with you, we're not going to always have apologetic um, answers. But when we do, we'll, we'll go there. Okay? So that's how we're going to approach the Scriptures together as we go through the Old Testament. Now, tonight, I want to answer again, what is the Old Testament? And I want to prove to you that the Old Testament you have in your Bibles as we go forward is the correct canon. Now, what in the world is a canon? Well, a cannon, let me just remind you of this, that it is not artillery, okay? It's not a 155-millimeter howitzer, nor a 105, okay? It is, in fact, a word that means standard. In fact, you can see here where it comes from the Hebrew and Greek for a reed or a, a measuring stick that had to do with how something was measured in the ancient Near East. And you could also tell a forfeit from something that was genuine by your measure or standard. So that's what cannon means, and so we're going to be dealing with the scriptures, which are the ultimate standard from, for truth and error. So now, what are the tests of canonicity? In other words, how do we know a book or some writing corresponds to the level of being scripture? That is the inerrant word of God. Well, first of all, we know it's written by God's spokesman. That is either a prophet in the Old Testament or an apostle. And... Let me just say this, that a prophet or apostle will often be, um, their acts or their words will be proven by the miraculous, whether it be a theophany. Now, what is a theophany? Well, you can see theos in there. It's, of course, a manifestation of God. Of course, we saw Moses, and we'll see this in the book of Exodus. He would demonstrate, in fact, that Moses was his servant by engaging in theophanies. We'll see that the prophets did supernatural acts. You know that little incident where uh, Elijah called down fire on the false prophets of Baal? That would be a little bit of a miraculous thing, would it not? You don't see that very often, do you? And so, see, friends, today when people are claiming, especially in the name it and claim it crowd, that they're doing miracles, it's actually hurting our case of proving, because, see, God uses miracles to prove who his spokesmen are. So if everything's a miracle today, well, then everybody's his spokesman. Okay, And so what we should do is to be zealous to say, no, the miracles in the Old Testament were non-normative. Okay, Non-normative. Uh, predictive prophecy, you're going to see the fact that human beings know the future is evidence that, in fact, they are inspired by God because only God knows the future. And therefore, that's also proof of a prophet and an apostle's calling. Uh, a second test of canonicity is that the, what's written is in accord with previous revelation. We'll talk about that when we get to the book of Deuteronomy. You shouldn't have a contradiction between what was previously revealed and what is being revealed now. Okay? If it is, it's a, it's a $3 bill. And I'm talking about now in the case if you were a prophet in the Old Testament, not now as in the year 2010. Uh, it's written to all people for all time. That is, the principles of what's written apply to more than the original audience. Why? Because it's God's Word. Okay? Again, salvation is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right? So now with that, how did the canon come together? And you're, what you're going to see is that there's really a three-step process every time a biblical book is added to the canon. It's, first of all, inspiration by God. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God breathed all of it out. It's all from Him. And what you'll see the second process or second step in this process be then is the recognition by the people of God. And what I notice I say recognition, not determination. 
because Catholicism, and that's what I'll primarily be debunking, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy because they hold the apocryphal books to be um, part of the Old Testament, they believe that the people of God determine the canon. What the Protestant claim is, no, we're not determining the canon. We're merely recognizing what God has done all along. And you see the big difference. Uh, Three, then the next step is the preservation by the people of God. This is the means by which we take what God has inspired, what the people of God have recognized, and we put it in a form where it's, it's in canonical form, okay? Like our 39 books that we have in our Old Testament. Now, what I want to do next is give you two big theories as to how this process came about. How did we get from Moses to Malachi? How did all the books of the Bible come together? Now, realize when I give you these two major paradigms as how this happened, I'm giving you two big camps where there's a lot of sub-camps, okay? There's a lot of... So I'm just giving you kind of... We're just scratching the surface, just to realize that. But yet, they're helpful categories. The first way that this happened was called what's the prophetic collection theory. This is also some kind called the progressive prophetic theory. And sometimes it's just called the progressive collection theory and so forth. But it's something to that effect. And here's the idea behind this, is that the inspired books were added to the canon as they were finished. In other words, Moses would write his works, and then when he died, his successor would come, finish up the loose ends, and then he would write his works. And so the books were added, one prophet to another, as it were, added to the canon. And this process would have started around 1400 B.C. How do we know that? Well, as we get into Exodus, I'm going to show you that the Exodus more than likely happened about 1445 B.C. And if you recall, the Israelites, they wandered in the wilderness for a good 40 years. And that would have put them just outside the Promised Land at about 1405. Okay, so 1400 is a good number. And that's when Moses would have written, of course, or begun writing the Pentateuch. And then, of course, in 400 B.C., we would have had the last prophet, Malachi. So that would have been the time frame. Now, again, this prophetic collection theory would maintain that a successor, and let's just take Moses and Joshua, when Moses dies, he obviously can't write Deuteronomy 34. He can't talk about himself after he's dead, right? But Joshua can. And that should not create any trouble for us. Why? Because Joshua is a prophet. He's also inspired, you see, and so to me, the strength of this is that the canon is developing gradually over time as the prophets are on the, on the scene, as it were, and the redactor, if you will, or the one who finishes up the loose ends of, from the prophet who died, they are themselves prophets, okay? This is a view that Norman Geisler would hold to. Um, he has an introduction on the Bible. I'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, Now, this is the other major theory, is the redaction theory. The redaction theory says that inspired redactors made substantial changes in the writings of earlier biblical authors. And again, that's Geisler. That's not his view, but he pointed that out, that that's the definition in his book. Now, the idea then is you would have redactors, sometimes hundreds of years later, who would take the individual writing of a biblical author and sometimes they would editorialize and rearrange materials, okay? Now, what I'm going to be showing you is that there is some of that that goes on, but it's not adding or subtracting to the text. It's merely arranging it, 
Okay, let me just uh, explain some issues. These are three, now there's a lot more issues that we could get into, but these are three big ones out there that point to some form of redaction. But I think some of the redaction theorists have gone too far and they are answerable under the prophetic collection theory. So let me explain. In Deuteronomy 2, 20, uh, 20 through 23, you have evidence of parenthetical thoughts. And what the people who hold to the redaction theory would say is that's evidence that a later redactor or editor added in these comments. The problem with that view is that certainly we could answer that in the prophetic collection theory by saying, well, no, the author did it. He put it in his own parentheses, right? His own parenthetical comments. And so certainly that Deuteronomy 2.20 through 23 is not unanswerable through the prophetic collection theory. So I don't necessarily buy that you have to have a redactor who comes 500 years later. Deuteronomy 34, we've already talked about that. That's, the uh, again, the death of Moses. Well, how can Moses, remember he's attributed as a writing the five, first five books of Moses, how could he have written Deuteronomy 34? Well, again, I think this is where the prophetic collection theory and redaction theory can come together. It was done by Joshua, but he was the next successor in the prophetic line. Okay, and then after Joshua, it was probably Samuel and so on. And I'll show you some scriptural evidence for that. Now, let me talk a little bit about Jeremiah and the two different versions of Jeremiah. Just to let everybody know, when you're looking at your Bible in the Old Testament, you're looking at what's called the Masoretic Text. It was prepared by a group of people named Masoretes around 900 A.D., okay? And so our Old Testament really, by and large, goes back to about 900 A.D., okay? Now, when the Dead Sea Scrolls came along in 1947, that discovery was revolutionary because now we had biblical texts that dated some of them to 200 B.C., some 1,100 years earlier, okay? Now, so, so the, version, the version that we have, again, of the Old Testament is the Masoretic text. There's another version called the Septuagint, or the, you know, sometimes you'll see it abbreviated LXX. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, about 250 B.C., Remember, the Israelites and those of Judah are dispersed throughout the known world. And because some of them want to have the language in the language of the day, that is Greek, they have scholars that come to Alexandria, Egypt, and they translate the Old Testament into Greek. So that's the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of Jeremiah is 2,700 words shorter than the Masoretic text. Okay, now at Qumran, when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was actually three different findings for Jeremiah. Two of them backed up the Masoretic text that we would have, and one backed up the Septuagint's reading. Now, what these people who hold to the redaction theory would say is, aha, here we have a clear example of later redactors changing things hundreds of years after Jeremiah's time. Okay? However, I think there may be a better answer. And the answer that I would put forward is simply this. We know, remember if you read Jeremiah 36, that Jeremiah's original work was burned up. Remember Jehoiakim, he burns it up. Well, then when you get to, um, and don't, that's not a problem because Baruch ends up writing a new one anyway. So don't, my whole point of saying that is don't look there for the answer. But when you get to Jeremiah 43 and 44, Jeremiah, when... 
the Babylonian sacked Judah in 586 B.C. Is everybody familiar with that date, most people? What happens is the Israelites, that is those of Judah, I should say, are brought into Babylonian captivity. But what happens to Jeremiah and Baruch is they go down to Egypt. Now, more than likely, the text that Jeremiah and Baruch have end up inspiring the LXX version. Okay, that is the one that's 2,700 words shorter. However, it's very possible that while in Egypt, okay, Baruch and Jeremiah, because remember, Baruch is Jeremiah's scribe, they put the finishing touches. And remember, they're inspired prophets. They're inspired by God to do this. They put the finishing touches on the version that we know as the Masoretic text. Okay, now, there are even some scholars that say that it's very possible that, in fact, both Baruch and Jeremiah ended up back in Babylon because in 568 B.C., the Babylonians sacked Egypt and some think that maybe that's how you have Jeremiah and Baruch back into Babylon. Okay, and therefore that would be the reason why, well, he left one text in Egypt and he brought his other text with him. Okay, so there's a lot of guesswork there. But the point is, is we don't necessarily need a redactor who comes hundreds of years later. That's the point. It's very possible that Jeremiah could have been doing his own revisions, okay, with the help of Baruch. And again, this would be the process of the inspired writers, okay? So with that, let me give you evidence for what I would call a modified prophetic view. What I mean by this is I don't have a problem with prophets who end up doing some redaction, not in adding or subtracting words, but in the formalization and canonization of the text itself. So what I'm going to show you in this slide is I'm going to show you scriptural evidence for this progressive prophetic view that the canon of scripture was added as you had each successive prophet come on the scene. Does that make sense? So let me show you some evidence. Let me start, first of all, with the Pentateuch in Joshua 1.8. Joshua says this. He says, This book of the law shall not depart um, from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night. That, that actually is the Lord telling Joshua that. The point being is we know from that passage that the book of the law, that is the first five books of Moses, is indeed intact and has been written then. Okay? We see more evidence in 1 Kings 2.3 here as David charges Solomon with these commands. He says, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. So that's obviously hundreds and hundreds of years later. But all I'm trying to show you here is that there is a canonical work known as the law of Moses that is the first five books. Okay. Now, the next thing that I want to point out is Joshua 24, 26. And notice these words here. It says, And Joshua wrote these words, in the book of the law of God. So here we have scriptural evidence that in fact Joshua's writings were incorporated then into the known text, that is into the known canon. And it happened progressively. Now, who may have written Joshua 24 or put the finishing touches on Joshua's writings? Well, more than likely it was Samuel. Okay? So again, as Moses dies, or when he dies, Joshua puts the finishing touches on his works. When Joshua dies, Samuel does the same. But again, all, the, all done by prophets, all inspired by God. And therefore, we have no problem with our doctrine of inspiration that says... And by the way, the doctrine of inspiration that we have, friends, let me just remind you, we as evangelicals believe 
in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Plenary and verbal means that not only do we believe the whole thing is inspired, but we believe every single word. Okay, now we, that's not... That's not to say that every single passage is mere dictation, God telling the biblical author like in a, in a headphone, say this, say this, say this. No, he ushered them along, but he intended the, uh, superintended the process to such a degree that every single word was the desired word of the Holy Spirit. Okay, does that make sense? So the point is, is that we have no problem with that doctrine because, again, all of these writings would have been added by a prophet who would have been inspired by God. That's the whole point. First uh, Samuel 10.25, it says, Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before Yahweh. Again, evidence that his works then were also incorporated. And this, so what you're seeing then is just a progression. You went from the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, you see Joshua's writings, now you see Samuel. Now, Second Chronicles 9.29 it says, now the rest of the acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the records of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite? And the point being again now is we're seeing even uh, prophets like Nathan, he is also adding to the canon by talking about the acts of Solomon. And if you get into First and Second Chronicles, more than likely written by Ezra, you'll see past, and I don't have time to get into all of them, okay, because we'd be here till tomorrow. But it's just passage after passage of what certain prophets wrote. And we're actually seeing good evidence again that this, this canon of Scripture is coming about as the prophets live their prophetic lives and then pass on to the scene. Okay, so you see this progression. Now, I hope you, again, if I went into First and Second Chronicles and kept showing you that, it would be more clear even. You see the different prophets and what they wrote. But in this next slide, I have to get into some other evidence for you because what I want to show you is that this notion that there was a canon, the notion that there was a group of books that were recognized as inspired is seen in passages even like Daniel 9.2. Okay, and this passage, by the way, would have been written about 539 B.C., or at least would be referring to that period, because it says, it's talking about Darius, the Medo-Persian king. It says, in the first year of his reign. Now remember, Darius was the one who came to power in 539 when the Babylonians were beaten by the Medo-Persians. Okay, so that's why we know that that's, this is the year. Daniel says, I, Daniel, observed in the books, that is the Safarim, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So the point is in this passage that Daniel knew very well that their captivity was over or, or nearing it because in Jeremiah 25 and in 29, you see that they were going to have a 70 years of captivity. Then, of course, in Daniel 9, there's a play on those words where it's not only until the time of the messianic reign, it's going to be 70 times 7 or 490 years, right? And we'll be talking about that amazing prophecy when we get to that section. But the point is, notice what Daniel is saying is that he recognizes some books to be written by the Lord or given by the Lord. Okay, he's recognizing these as canonical. So even in Daniel's day, he's recognizing, it seems, an established canon. Now, what I want to do now is I want to progress. I want you to just think of this, this order of prophets just um, chronologically going onward until we get close to 450 B.C. And now we're coming to, or around 500 B.C., we're coming to the time of Zechariah. And what I want to show you in this passage is this pra- passage 
gives us a good indication that to the Old Testament prophetic mind of that day, that is around 500 B.C., they knew that the prophets were going to die out. There would be no prophets for a period of time. Now, why is that important to our discussion tonight? Well, because when we see through, you know, from our vantage point that that more than likely happened during the intertestamental period. And that's exactly what the Catholics are claiming, or I should say that's when the apocryphal books were written that the Catholics are claiming to be Scripture. Okay, so let me read you Zechariah 3, 13, 2 through 3. Zechariah says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of Yahweh. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. So again, the point is, there's going to be a day that's coming. There's no more prophets. Okay. Now, that anticipates, well, there must be a reestablishment of the prophets. And sure enough, the very last prophet in our Old Testament canon, the book of Malachi, says this. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, there's a preliminary fulfillment in Luke 1, 16 and 17. The point being is, Zechariah looks to a day that there's not going to be any prophets. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The 400 years between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, there's no prophets. Even 1 Maccabees 9.27, we'll show you that passage later in the apocryphal books themselves, admit this. Josephus says this. The Babylonian Talmud says this, that there was no prophet in Israel. And therefore, if there's no prophet in Israel for those 400 years, you can't have any inspired writings. And yet, that's when the apocryphal books are written. Okay, That's why this is so important. But the point is, Malachi 4 or 5 then looks for a day when, yes, there will be a prophet again that comes. And sure enough, we see in the New Testament that that's John the Baptist. Okay, And in some sense, he's really the last of the Old Testament prophets then. Okay? So what is the Old Testament again? We want to answer this question. Do God's people determine or recognize the canon? Again, the Catholic view is that the church, being infallible, determined what the canon is. Why? Well, because at the end of the day, their pope is infallible. When he speaks ex cathedra, he is sitting really in a direct line of succession from the apostle Peter himself. And therefore, when he says something from the seat, that's what ex cathedra means, and it's a reference in some sense back to Moses' seat, well, then he's speaking infallibly. And so they believe the church determinations and even the councils cannot err. Okay, the Protestant view is that the church and Israel merely recognized what God had determined all along. So who determined the canon? Well, God did. And so you and I, we merely recognized again what God did. That's the point. Okay, now here's the categories dealing with canonization. What I want to get into is these different categories. There's four of them, and there's probably terms that you haven't heard. Um, and so I want to get into these different categories and I want to finally kind of start focusing in then on the apocryphal works and show you that they do not belong in our Old Testament. The first category that we want to deal with is something called the homo legumina. And that means these are books that have agreement or are accepted by all. Now, which books would these be? These books would be all the books, again, in your Old Testament canon except five. And think of the acronym, it's five, would be SEEP. It's S, three E's, and a P, the Song of Solomon, Esther, Ecclesiastes. Oh, what's the other E? 
oh, Ezekiel, and then it's Proverbs. Okay, those are the five that, and let me make this very carefully uh, understood, those five were objected to at just one point in the history of Israel by one small school of the school of Shammai, these rabbis. Okay, so let me just make this clear that the books really didn't have much opposition and in fact, they were readily accepted. However, they were attacked at one point in Israel's history. So that's what they're called. The, all the books in our Bible except those five are called the homologumena. Now, the anti-legomena, these are the books that are spoken against. That is just a few of them, and that were those five that I gave you. Okay? The, again, the seep, the, the five. That, and I'll show you on the next slide those five. Okay? Now, these, the pseudopigrapha, or, or pigrapha, I should say, these are the spurious works that are rejected by all. And so not one single uh, person, really, whether you be a Jew or you be a Protestant Christian or if you're um, uh, from the Eastern Orthodox or you're a Catholic, you would not call any of these an inspired canonical work. And I'll be showing you a list of these. Now, you can see that one of the prefixes here has to do with pseudonyms. That is, these writings were written by authors who signed their name like a pseudonym to try to get a following. Now, what benefit do you have in writing or reading any of these works that are pseudopographical? Well, one of the benefits is it at least lets you in on how the Jews were thinking in their day. They were written between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. And that's right around the time, of course, that Jesus comes, right? So it gives you insights at least into the theology of the people of that day. Okay, and then finally, the apocryphal books. Apocrypha literally means hidden, and these are accepted by some only. That is, um, they're not accepted by the Jews, and as canonical, they're not accepted by us Protestants, but they are accepted by Catholics and by the Eastern Orthodox. Okay, and that's what I want to take a whack at because the last thing, the, the reason why we're doing this heavy lifting this evening, is because the last thing I want to have happen to you is you're at a Bible study. And some joker pulls out the apocryphal books and you haven't at least been, at least addressed the issue. Do you understand? And so by the end of tonight, my prayer is again, you can say, no, I know that our canon is the right canon. That's the goal. First of all, let's start with the anti-legomena. Again, these are the five that were under attack at one point in Israel's history. Now note, again, I can't make this you know, note strong enough. These disputed canonical books were only disputed after hundreds of years of clear acceptance by the Jews and they also were ultimately defended and never excluded. Now, who were the rascals that were trying to reject these books? Well, they were rabbis from the school of Shammai, and many of them would have, these men would have been around during Jesus' day. In fact, they fought like cats and dogs with another school called the school of Hillel. Okay? So anyway, what ends up happening, though, is they end up losing the debate, and the, these books have clear acceptance. But let me show you the books, the Song of Solomon. The claim by this school of rabbis was that it was too sensual. Well, a later rabbi says, not only is it okay that the Song of Solomon is too sensual, it is the holy of holies of all of the Old Testament. Okay, now that's quite a bold statement, but why is he saying that? Because he allegorized the text and said it was an allegory and a metaphor for God's love for his people. Okay, but nonetheless, the Song of Solomon won out, and it was, of course, never really seriously rejected. It was always accepted before and after the school of Shammai. Ecclesiastes, it's too skeptical. Remember, this is written by the man who, of course, said, vanity of vanities, everything's vanity, right? Solomon. 
Okay, but of course, at the end of it, what does he conclude? Well, he says, serve God, doesn't he? Obey him, believe in him. And so, yes, it starts off skeptical, but it sure has an orthodox point at the end, doesn't it? Okay, so again, uh, those who fought the school of Shammai said, uh, well, thanks, but no thanks. We'll keep the book that we've always recognized as canonical. Esther, there's no mention of God's name. A man named Robert Alter has pointed out that the very fact that God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther may actually be being used as a literary device. Okay, so in other words, when you have, at the end of the day, Mordecai and the Jews live and survive, and there's never ever a mention of Yahweh's name or Elohim's name, it actually brings one's attention to the fact because it's so conspicuously absent. And so what you're saying then is at the end of the book that, well, look at what God did behind the scenes. And so it's the idea that God providentially cares for his people. So many scholars said that it's actually a literary device to bring attention to the fact that God works providentially. Okay, so again, the school of Shammai lost that debate. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was under attack because these eight or nine chapters, Ezekiel 40 through 48, they believe contradicted the ceremonial law. Now, when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we're going to be talking about how I believe the time of the ceremonial law in the millennial kingdom, it will be different. The temple will be different. And again, if you remember, friends, the ceremonial and sacrificial laws, they never did provide salvation, but rather the Jews who obeyed them did so in faith that one day Messiah was coming to provide salvation for them. So in the millennial kingdom, this is when I believe this will be enacted, it's not that the Jews are trying to attempt salvation again, but rather they're commemorating the salvation they have. Okay, so whereas the sacrificial system in Leviticus looks forward to the day of Messiah, the sacrificial system in Ezekiel 40 through 48 looks back to the sacrifice and commemorates. That's the take that I would have on it. Again, no contradiction whatsoever. Um, And finally, Proverbs. It's alleged that there were contradictions by the school of Shammai. Think about Proverbs 26.4 where it says, if you answer a fool according to his folly, you'll be like him. Well, in the very next verse it says, if you don't answer a fool according to his folly, he'll be wise in his own estimation, right? And so what these guys would say, well, wait a minute, that's a contradiction. You You shouldn't answer a fool, then you should. Well, the point of Proverbs is wisdom. It takes wisdom to know when you should answer a fool and when you should just walk away. And we'll talk a little bit about Proverbs and the general principles that you learn for life. You can't necessarily say that these are 100% rules all the time. Okay? And again, the problem was Shammai, the school of Shammai, had their hermeneutics backwards. It wasn't the problem of the biblical text. So again, all of these books, all these five, were under attack for just a brief period of time but they were accepted before and they were accepted after the school of Shammai fell out of disfavor. Now, let me just show you a list. I'm not going to get into these, but the pseudepigraphical works. Again, if you want to have a good um, understanding of these books and read some, you can read a book called The Journey of Text to Translations by Paul Wagner. I'll actually show you um, another listing of his and you can write it down. It's in the slides. But let me just show you what these pseudepigraphical works have. Again, written between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D., You see the books that are legendary, the books that are apocalyptic. Here you have first Enoch, a man that's carried up to heaven, and he sees all these uh, apocalyptic visions. Didactical means teaching. So you have these, it would be kind of like our epistles, as it were. Uh, You have poetical and the historical books. Now, let me make one comment on these again, and it's this. Um, When I was doing research in seminary for a paper, I used some scrolls or some 
passages that came from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what I'm going to share with you is how I think you can use the pseudepigraphical works. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was revealed by the community, more than likely the Essenes, that they actually believed in three different messiahs. They believed in a messiah that would be a prophet, a messiah that would be priest, and a uh, messiah that would be a king. And they believed that there had to be three different messiahs because they couldn't imagine one man fulfilling them all. Okay? Well, what's interesting to me is they just didn't know it was going to be one. And sure enough, Jesus is a prophet like Moses, right? He's a priest like Melchizedek, and he's a king like David, isn't he? But they couldn't imagine. But the point is, is I, after reading that, I had an insight into that audience to say, yes, they were wrestling with messianic doctrine. Did they have it all figured out? No, but they were wrestling with it. And so we can use the pseudepigraphical works to understand how the Jews thought in the day. That's how I would understand it. But don't think they're canonical. Don't think that these are words from, from God. That's the point. Okay, the apocryphal books, there's 15 here. And again, these would have been written during that intertestamental period where there was no prophet. Okay, and so again, these were added by the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in 1546. But note, do you see where I have these asterisks? These books that are right now in the Catholics' canon were not originally included even at Trent. Okay, so these are even included subsequent, um, subsequently to Trent. Okay, now again, I'm not going to delve into all of these, but what I want to do is I want to just as a lump sum show that these do not belong in our Old Testaments. And I'm going to be asking the question, is the Apocrypha Scripture? The first thing I want to do is show you the Catholic arguments, okay? So if you run across a Catholic who has his game a little bit, he has some apologetic prowess, these are some arguments you'll probably run into. And then we're going to debunk them and show why they're wanting. Number one, they would claim that the New Testament authors often quote from the Septuagint, which contains the Apocryphal book. So again, when the Septuagint was written the 70 scholars who were in Alexandria, if we buy the, the fact that there were 70, they actually wrote some apocryphal books as well. Okay, but does that necessarily mean that because the New Testament quoted from the Septuagint that they, we should accept the apocryphal books? I'll show you that that's not good thinking. Uh, number two, they would say that some scholars claim that there was a wider Alexandrian canon that contained the additional 15 books of the apocrypha, they claim this canon to be superior to the Palestinian canon. What I'll show you is there's really good evidence to say there never was an Alexandrian canon. Okay? So in other words, the Palestinian canon would be the one that we have. Okay? It's the Bible that we have. And again, what I'm going to be claiming to you is that the Bible we have, that is the Old Testament, that's what we're focusing on, is the same Old Testament the Jews had, and it's the same Old Testament Jesus had. And again, that's the goal of this evening. I want you to be confident that when you're studying the Old Testament, you know that it's the same Old Testament Jesus had and that he was looking at, okay? And so they're claiming, no, there was, there was another canon called the Alexandrian canon that had these apocryphal books in them. And I'll show you, no, that's, that's really not true. Three, several apocryphal books were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And again, I'll show you why that doesn't matter. Some early church fathers accepted the apocryphal books. Irenaeus, he accepted the Book of Wisdom. Clement of Alexandria, he accepted Tobit, Syriac, and Wisdom. And then they would argue, of course, that the Council of Trent in 1546 declared the apocrypha as canon. And that is a powerful argument to the Catholic who believes that church councils cannot err. And same with the Eastern Orthodox. You and I as Protestants say, well, big whoop. The only thing that can't err is the scriptures themselves. Okay, and I think we're right. 
So let's start debunking these one by one. I want to start off by number one is, again, the issue that the Septuagint was cited by the New Testament authors. It, it was, but this is actually a good claim against accepting the apocryphal books. Why? Well, notice, although there may be allusions to the pseudopigrapha uh, books, and there's even allusions, friend, think about this, there's even allusions to um, Epimenides, which is a philosopher slash, um, you know, he was kind of a poet, I guess, too, in, in Titus. Remember, um, the, what were the, the Cretans? They were lazy gluttons and wild beasts and so forth. Remember, Paul actually quotes from this Epimenides. Now, does that mean Epimenides is inspired? Well, of course not. It was true as, it, as the saying goes. Okay, but the point is, think about the power here. The, uh, Epimenides is quoted from. You have all these Old Testament books quoted from. And you even have perhaps pseudepigraphical works alluded to, not quoted from, but alluded to, but not one single reference or quote or allusion to a apocryphal book. Wow, by a New Testament writer? Well then, t- friends, that's really devastating because the apocryphal books certainly didn't make much of an impression on the New Testament authors, did it? The earliest manuscripts that contain the Apocrypha, that is Codex Sinaiticus, is from the 4th century. Codex Alexandrius, the 5th century. Codex Vaticanus, 4th century. All date from the 4th century onward. Now, why is that significant? Well, this means that they were more than likely influenced by Augustine. Augustine was really a better theologian than he was a linguist and a person that could deal with textual criticism. If he would have listened to his friend Jerome, Jerome was a tremendous linguist. Jerome knew the texts very well. And he knew that the apocryphal books were not to be deemed as scripture. But the reason why Augustine wanted to include the apocryphal books is because he saw references to the martyrs. And he loved the references to the martyrs within them. Now think about the logic though. In fact, let me just put this up so I don't get ahead of my... Think about this. Augustine reasoned that the Apocrypha should be accepted because it contains stories of the martyred saints. Well, with that line of reasoning, well, we should have, remember John Fox's Book of the Martyrs? Well, that should be canonical, right? So just because a, a work references martyrs doesn't mean it's canonical. So again, Augustine was way out in left field on this. He should have listened to his friend Jerome. Okay, but that's why these early manuscripts are all uh, contain the Apocryphal because they were, in, they were um, influenced by Augustine. That's the point. The supposed superiority of the Alexandrian canon. Now, I'm going to be giving you quotes here. What you're going to be seeing on the, here is a quote from a fellow that I'll point out at the end regarding this Alexandrian canon issue. He says this, The likelihood of a larger Alexandrian canon has been ruled out for the following reasons. Okay, He says, There are two assumptions on which it was based have now been proven false. First, that Hellenistic Judaism was largely independent of Palestinian Judaism, And second, that most of the Apocrypha was composed in Egypt in the Greek language. Okay, that's devastating. Those assumptions have been proven false. So Hellenistic Judaism was very tied to Palestinian Judaism. And there's another group of evidence here. The prologue to Sirach, that is an apocryphal work itself, specifically states that it was written in Egypt, but very interestingly it mentions only the tripartite divisions of the Old Testament scriptures which probably did not include the Old Testament apocryphal books. So within an apocryphal work itself, Sirach, 
it points out that there's the tri- a tripartite, that is threefold division of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's exactly what we have. That's exactly what Jesus had. That's exactly what the Israelites had. Notice the tripartite um, division would eliminate the apocryphal books. They were never part of the law, the prophets, and the, the writings. Okay, so the law, the prophets, and the writings. Torah, Nevaim, and Kathavim. Okay, that is in fact the Hebrew scriptures. And even an apocryphal work itself says that no, they were never really part of it. All right, so they, they go on. They say Jewish writers who commonly use the Septuagint, that is Josephus and Philo. Philo was a very influential thinker from Alexandria. And it says that he did not consider the apocryphal books to be divinely inspired. And I'll be showing you more quotes from them. But it is becoming increasingly unlikely that there were different canons in these two regions. Thus, the existence of certain apocryphal books in extant copies of the Septuagint must be accounted for by some other means. That's from Paul Wagner, The Journey from Text to Translations. It's a great book. Um, you could probably find one online real easy, um, you know, wherever you like to shop for books. Very worthwhile, very readable as well, okay? So I think that's very devastating there. Now, let me move on to number three. That is, these apocryphal books were found at Qumran. Well, the simple answer is this. Whereas the Old Testament is commented in, on commentaries and is on special parchment, That is not the case with the apocryphal books indicating their diminished status. So the point being, friends, is when you look at the works at Qumran, yes, you have apocryphal books, but none of them have, uh, well, I shouldn't say none of them, but they really have no commentaries to go along with them. So I forget, I think there were 915, or is it 904? But It's in the 900s of manuscripts. I think it was 604 have nothing to do with either the apocryphal books or the scriptures. Their writings by the communities, okay? And yet in all those writings, not one of them is a commentary or that I know of on the apocryphal books, yet we have many commentaries on the canonical books that we have in our Bible. So again, that shows you that these people had a diminished view of the apocryphal books, okay? Finally, four... I think we actually have a five, too, don't we? Early church fathers approved of the Apocrypha. Listen to what a man named Roger Beckwith in the Old Testament canon says about this. He says, Not all quotations by the church fathers... or I'm sorry, this is me, actually. Not all church fathers imply they believe that the Apocrypha is inspired. Here's Beckwith. He says, When one examines the passages in the early fathers, which are supposed to establish the canonicity of the Apocrypha, one finds that some of them are taken from the alternative Greek text of Ezra, or from additions or appendices to Daniel, Jeremiah, or some other canonical book, which are not really relevant, that others of them are not quotations from the Apocrypha at all, and that of those which are, many do not give any indication that the book is regarded as Scripture. And so, friends, when people claim, well, the church fathers, some of them quoted from the Apocryphal books, that really isn't worth a lot. Because, number one, you can quote from a book, just like Paul quoted from Epimenides and Titus, he didn't think that that was canonical. Okay? So, again, these are often Catholic apologists trying to make more hay than it's really warranted with the text. Finally, number five. Oh, one more point on this one is this. Although some individuals favored the Apocrypha, remember this, this is important, no church council for the first four centuries thought them to be canonical. I think that's huge. And again, it's not till those texts came out in the 4th century 
that were influenced by Augustine did this idea that the apocryphal books, uh, that they might be canonical, come about. In fact, some individuals like Athanasius, does everybody remember that name? Athanasius, he was one who fought the Arian heresy that was finally settled in uh, Nicaea in 325. This poor fellow, he was banished like 12 different times. He'd come back to his home and then he'd be expelled. He'd come home and he'd be expelled. It's, it's, it's kind of in a sick way humorous because the poor guy, he's always banished from his homeland. Another important person though on this list, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, Origen, and Jerome. Jerome, friends, was the heavy hitter. He really was a good linguist and really understood the issues surrounding canonicity and textual criticism. And again, it, or, um, Augustine would have done well to listen to him. They were all vehemently opposed to the Apocrypha friends being regarded as Scripture. So let me just remind you now of number five. The Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha to be Scripture. Let me show you the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. Again, the Catholic Church says that the Church determines the canon. We're saying, no, the Church doesn't determine the canon. We merely recognize it. The, the Catholics are saying that the Church created the Bible... We're saying, no, 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 the Bible created the church. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How is it that you become a saint? Are you a saint because the Catholic Church determines you are, or are you a saint because you believe the scriptures? Well, of course, it's the latter. Tradition and Bible are an authority or equal authority in Catholicism where the Bible alone is the authority in our worldview. Now, that's why the most important sola in the Reformation is sola scriptura, isn't it? That's the really what it all hinges upon. And that's why we're belaboring these points so that you know, again, if you have a Bible study, you have the Old Testament that Jesus had. Um, Revelation, the Catholics believe it's continuing. Why? Well, because the Pope can speak ex cathedra because he's also a modern-day apostle. Uh, Protestants, of course, we believe that Revelation has ceased. By the way, 1 Corinthians 15.8 may give us an indication to that is the fact because Paul says that he was the last of the apostles. And the Greek construction in 1 Corinthians 15.8 can indicate the last in a line of a series. Okay? So the very construction there indicates that Paul thought of himself is the last of the apostles in the series of them. You see what I'm saying? And so therefore he regarded himself as the last and so certainly we don't have any other apostles and therefore we can't have any more revelation. And so finally, the Apocry- Apocrypha is accepted by the Catholics and it's rejected by us. Now, let me just throw a few more in here for the road. Very interesting. There was a Cardinal Cajetan. He was the one who opposed Luther at Augsburg in 1518. In fi- or I should say in 1518, he, um, he published a commentary on all the authentic historical books of the Old Testament that did not include the Apocrypha I, I'm sorry, that was in 1532. So he disputed, I guess, with Luther in 1518. So the point is this cardinal in 1532, he knew that the apocryphal books did not belong in the Old Testament canon. Now remember, that would be, what would it be? 12 years or 14 years prior to the Council of Trent, wouldn't it? Okay, so isn't that interesting? This heavy hitter of the Catholic theologians, even in 1532, he said that, the apocryphal books didn't belong, okay? And so that's a nice little handy tool to have if you're ever in a debate. The apocrypha itself declares that it was not written by a prophet. Again, First Maccabees 9.27 says, So was there a great affliction in Israel, the like whereof was not since the time that a prophet was not seen amongst them. The idea in First Maccabees 9.27 is that they had no prophet in the land, okay? 
that there's no prophet in the land. Remember, that's exactly what Zechariah 13 was saying, that there was going to be a day that would come when God would take the prophets out of the land. In fact, if anyone prophesied, they'd be pierced through if they said, thus saith the Lord. Okay? And so, again, that's why we, we say, yes, this intertestamental period had no prophet. Uh, the Talmud declares that the Holy Spirit left after the latter prophets, the, Bal- the Babylonian Talmud. Oh, by the way, there are a lot of historical and theological errors. We couldn't get into that issue. If you want to look at the apocryphal books and see all the theological and chronological and historical errors in them, that or the journey of text to translations by Paul Wagner that I showed earlier in the slides, it's a great work to look at. Okay. Now, let me give you the evidence for the Hebrew canon. This is what I'm really excited about because I want to show you through the scriptures that you can use as well to prove the Hebrew canon. But first of all, a couple of points. The prologue, even to the apocryphal book Sirach, written in 132 B.C., refers to the Hebrew Bible using the three-part division. Again, law, prophets, and the others that followed them. The others that followed them would have been the writings. Okay, That's what it was allusion to. And again, that indicates that even in an apocryphal book, they knew that the canonical books were the books that Jesus had, the threefold, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, here, this is interesting. We're going to look at some New Testament texts here that clearly affirm two important facts. Number one, that the Jews had the right scriptures, and two, the Jewish scriptures were written in the three-part division of the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, now let's start in Luke, or I'm sorry, let's start in Matthew. This is a very interesting passage in Matthew 23, 34 through 35, This is Jesus scolding the uh, Pharisees and the scribes. And listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. What Jesus is saying to these people is that they are guilty of all the righteous blood that has ever been shed in the name of unbelief. From Genesis 4-8, uh, that is when Abel was murdered by Cain, all the way to this character, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. The question, friends, that we have to answer is, who is this Zechariah, son of Berechiah? Now, there are two options that we have to look at. The first one is very straightforward, It's Jesus referring to Zechariah, the prophet who writes our Old Testament book of Zechariah, okay? Because he's obviously he's called the son of Berechiah. The problem with that is is it's never mentioned in the scriptures that he's murdered. Now, does that mean that he's not murdered? Well, of course not. It just may be that the scriptures don't mention it. But there is a Zechariah that is mentioned in scripture that is murdered, and that's Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. But the problem, now that's in Second Chronicles 24.20. The problem is, is he's not the son of Berechiah. Do you see the difference? So now here's the thing. Do we want to go with this Zechariah? There's no reference to his murder, but at least he's the son of Berechiah. Or this Zechariah, he's not the son of Berechiah, but he was murdered. There's, this is the best take on it that I have heard. And, and I think this comes from a man named, um, um, well, I can't think of his name now. D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson in his commentary, if you want to read further. But, he, but here's the point. This Jehoiada, we have evidence, even from, for instance, Zechariah, um, that wrote our old book, Zechariah, our Old Testament book, Zechariah, there's evidence 
that they would often use not only the son of their father, but they would also be called the son of their grandfather. So, for instance, in Ezra 6.14, we see that Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is also called Zechariah, the son of Edu, or um, Ida. It's, it's I-D-D-O. I don't know how you'd pronounce it in Hebrew. I'd have to look. But the point is, is that's his grandfather. Okay? So the point is, is what could be happening here in the Chronicles case is this, that Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, this is actually his grandfather. And so his father very well likely could have been Berechiah. That's the whole point. And so now you have, because this is a reference clearly in, in 2 Chronicles 24 to his being murdered. Okay, and what's more, Jehoiada in Second Chronicles 24:15, it says that he grew or he um, lived to be 130 years old. So that's very old indeed, and more than likely he was probably the grandfather that is Jehoiada of Zechariah. Okay, so that would certainly leave the possibility that Berechiah was Zechariah's father, and the reference to Jehoiada was actually to his grandfather. Now, what's so neat about this? This is the whole point. When Jesus links the, the murder of Abel, that's the beginning of the Hebrew canon, Genesis 4.8. In the Hebrew canon, the last book in it, remember they have the same books, they're just in different order. Is everybody with me? Okay. The, the, in their canon, the last book in it is Chronicles. In fact, there's no first, second Chronicles. Remember the same books, same content, but they just list it as Chronicles. And that's the last book of their canon. So here's the point to this passage. Jesus very well could have been saying, through all of redemptive history, you um, Pharisees, from the first murder to the last one recorded in the Scripture, that is in Chronicles, you're the people who are guilty of all this innocent blood because of your unbelief. Okay? And what that proves to us, friends, is yes, Jesus' canon was Genesis to Chronicles, the exact same canon that the Jews have today in the exact same Old Testament canon that we have in our Protestant Bibles. That's the significance of it. Okay, so very important text. And again, am I absolutely convinced that option two is the right one? No, I'm not, but it's very possible. Okay, but now I'm going to show you a couple other passages that are very damaging to the apocryphal view that it's canonical. Luke 24 to 44, remember the road to Emmaus? Jesus says this to his disciples. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay? So again, you see the tripartite uh, parts of the Word of God, the law, that is the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms. Now, this to me, friends, is the most important passage that you want to keep in your back pocket if you ever have to deal with this issue on canonicity. If you remember anything from this lecture tonight, it's Romans 3. Listen to the the implication here from what Paul says. Remember, in the first three chapters, Paul had belabored the point that whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're guilty. And so the obvious question then, well, why be a Jew? What advantage was it? Well, he asked that question and he answers it. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And Paul, he answers it. He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Paul's claim here is that the Jews had the very words of God. And the point being, friends, is we know from what I've showed you already that the Jews' canon excluded the apocryphal books. The Catholics would have you believe, and the Eastern Orthodox, that the Jews had the wrong canon. But Paul is saying that they had the canon. 
So here's the point. Either the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox are right, that the Jews had the wrong canon, or Paul is right, that they did have the right canon, that they had the very oracles of God. Okay, and I think I heard Jim. Jim said, I'm going with Paul, and I am too. I'm with you. Um, and so, again, friends, this is very important because, again, it's, it's that simple. Either the Jews had the right canon or they didn't. And Paul says they did. Okay, and so, again, a very devastating passage indeed. So the Catholics must maintain that the Jews didn't have the correct canon. Okay, now let me continue onward. I'm just going to show you a few more, and we'll wrap it up here. Philo, remember I had mentioned him. He was a well-educated Jew from Alexandria, He believed the same Hebrew scriptures as in the Protestant canon were inspired, but excluded the Apocrypha. This is a quote from, again, that Wagner. He says, Though Philo quotes all the books of the Pentateuch, most of the books of the prophets, and several of the books of the Hagiographa, that would be the the writings, often with formulas recognizing their divine authority, he never once quotes a book of the Apocrypha. Okay, again, Philo was very sharp. He actually loved philosophy, as you can maybe tell by even his name. And um, he was a very sharp thinker. And I'm actually going to show you, I, I'm sorry, I've got um, Josephus' canon. That's what I'll be showing you next. I thought I had Philo's canon. But Josephus is also very important. Remember, he was a general, ends up turning into a historian. And he said this in his Contra Appian, we do not possess myriads of inconsistent books conflicting with each other. Our books, those which are justly accredited, are but two and twenty and contain the record of all time. Now notice again, he has 22 books in his canon. We have 39. We have the same content. It's just they're, they're broken up differently. That's all. Okay. Now why would a Jew want 22 books? What would kind of be the motivating factor behind, behind that? Well, that's how many letters in their alphabet. Okay. And so I think that they lined it up that way, thinking that their alphabet was somehow inspired, and therefore they wanted 22 books, okay? That's kind of what I think. But again, I can't prove that. Now let me show you Josephus' canon. And again, this would have been the canon of Jesus, okay, very likely. The Torah, and we're going to be starting again on Genesis next week. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy. Now look at when you get to the prophets, you get Joshua, then you have Judges and Ruth together. It's one work. And then you have Samuel. You don't have first and second. They're just, it's one work. You have Kings is one work. Isaiah, Jeremiah stuck together with Lamentations. You have Ezekiel. Then you have the 12. So you and I would have 12 books there, right, of the minor prophets. They, they have the one book, the 12. And then you have in the writings the Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah together, and Chronicles, again, is one book. So remember... When Jesus says that the Pharisees are guilty of all the blood from righteous Abel, Genesis 4, 8, to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, if we're correct in our understanding of that passage, that Jehoiada is actually the grandfather, then Jesus is referring to someone who's killed in Chronicles. So he's saying from the beginning of Revelation to the end, you're, you've been guilty of all that blood. And why is that important? Again, because that would prove that the, the canon in Jesus' eyes was from Genesis to Chronicles. And that's exactly what we have, just in different order in our Bibles. Okay, that's the significance of Matthew 23. So that's Josephus' canon. Now, let me just continue with Josephus. This is an interesting quote, and then we'll wrap it up here. It says, From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. What he's getting at is there were the apocryphal books written under Artaxerxes. Remember, he came to power in the 400s B.C., And so what Josephus is saying is, yes, we had these other writings, but they were not of equal credit. Why? Because we didn't have any prophets. 
That was the problem. Well, that's exactly what Zechariah 13 had prophesied, that God would take the prophets out of Israel. And that's why it was important that John the Baptist came on the scene because God's revelation then was coming again, preparing the way straight for the Lord. So Josephus continues, he says, We have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. And it is an instinct to every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them as the, de- as the decrees of God, to abide by them and if need be, cheerfully to die for them. Notice Josephus says, like you and I would even as good evangelicals, that no one is added or subtracted to the book. And so he's even maintaining a form of inspiration that you and I would hold to. Okay, Very beautiful testimony indeed. So let me give you a summary about what we learned here this evening. Jesus, again, he quotes from the books of the law, the prophets and the writings, but he never quotes a single apocryphal book. Okay, The New Testament writers, they allude to pseudepigraphical books, They quote even pagan philosophers, but never the Apocrypha. Three, the acceptance of the Apocrypha would imply that the Jews had the wrong canon, right? Romans 3, 2. An Apocryphal book itself, 1 Maccabees 9.27 declares, no prophet in Israel during the time of the Apocrypha was written. Four, the Apocrypha contains hundreds of historical, chronological, and theological errors. It is amazing the amount of them, okay? Now let's just talk about errors in the Bible. Do we have errors... For instance, on dates at times, we do. However, we can attribute in the Old Testament the um, what we'd perceive to be errors is scribal, um, uh, scribal errors. So in other words, we always have textual data that we can actually fix the error with. So in other words, you may have a number transposed, you may have a date wrong, but we know from other manuscripts and we can usually correct the problem. And so for all intents and purposes, we don't have any errors, whether they be chronological or, you know, whatever, theological, certainly. Okay? So again, the point being is we don't have these type of errors in the Scriptures. And so it's a, it's a completely different ballgame altogether. Philo, Josephus, and Jerome had the same Old Testament. And I think that's powerful. What does it tell us? Why is this important? Again, the, the thing that I want all of us to come down on this evening is that the Old Testament we have that we're going to be studying is the same one that Jesus had, okay? And it's been preserved incredibly well, and so much so that when we do have a scribal oopsie where they transpose a number, we can see from all our manuscripts that they transposed a number. So God is even in the, in the process of our canonization has kept our manuscripts to a certain degree that we have the Word of God. And so we should praise Him for that. So with that, I've, I've talked a long time, and I'm sorry, this was a heavy lift this evening. Before I open it up, next week I'm really excited. We're going to be getting into Genesis, the structure of it, and also Genesis 1.1. We're going to spend a lot of time in that. And um, I'm really excited to get into the text next week. But I wanted to make sure that we all could answer, if anyone would say, well, how do you know you even have the right Old Testament scriptures that we would have indeed an answer for them. So with that, I'll take your comments or questions. In the book of Jude, where it talks about the devil and Michael contending with the body of Moses, isn't that a reference back to the assumption of Moses? Yeah. Yep, it sure is. And so what's interesting is that is a reference to even a pseudepigraphical work, right? What I like to use that for is notice not a Jew, not an Eastern Orthodox, not a Roman Catholic, nor a Protestant would say a pseudepigraphical work is inspired. 
Okay, and yet that's even alluded to, and yet not an apocryphal book. You see what I'm saying? So it's actually a very powerful tool to use in our testimony that the apocryphal book should not be regarded as Scripture. Yeah, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, to me, that doesn't prove again that that pseudepigraphical work is inspired any more than Epimenides is inspired by Paul when he cites him that all Cretans are lazy drunks and so forth, yeah. I'm just curious if you can explain the reasoning why the Hebrews have, like, Daniel not in the prophets and, and just some of the organization of how they split between the writings and the prophets? Yeah, it's a good question because they certainly do regard, Jesus regarded Daniel as a prophet, Matthew 24:15. Certainly they regarded him as a prophet. And that's one thing I want to caution everyone is when you see the writings, do not think that that necessarily means that they're not prophetic, okay? So, for instance, even the Psalms, the Psalms we often think are part of the writings, obviously. Well, what does Peter say in Acts 2? But David was a prophet, and he spoke of the Christ. You know, talking about, and then he, salt, he um, cites Psalm 16:10 that he would not see decay. So the point is, is that yes, they have the law, the prophets, and the writings. But their writings, they seem to. And I don't have an answer for you. I wish I did to be up, up front. I don't know why. It's, it seems that a lot of their writings, they have prophets within their writings as well. So yeah, um, and why that is, I don't know. And if I can, I'll try to find out if I can if there's an answer. But just to set everyone at ease, when you read that, the Jews themselves, like Peter, of course, he was a good Jew. Uh, Jesus, obviously, the best of all of them, right? They knew that the prophets were in the writings as well. So, but I don't know why that is, in fact, the case. So, I have a question on the pseudo-pigrapha. There's the Book of Jubilee. Yeah. And wasn't that mentioned like in Chronicles or something or in the Old Testament? Well, there, there's certainly, you may be thinking of the the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. Yeah. Yep. There's a book of Jasher mentioned, I think, and a book of Jubilees mentioned somewhere, and I'm forgetting right now where it's. Yeah, it, there, there are several books that are mentioned, but I don't know if they're the pseudepigraphical works. What often happens, because remember, these pseudepigraphical works would have been written from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D., so what would have happened is you may have well had a, an author who wanted to assign his name to somebody that the Jews respected. But certainly, if there's any reference to it, there's a lot of books that are referred to in the Old Testament that certainly aren't canonical, but they seem to be records within the covenant people of Israel's treasury, as it were, uh, maintained perhaps by the scribes and the prophets. But I, I would maybe the reference to Jubilee that you're thinking of is the Levitical law that in the 50th year the land had to go back to its original recipient. But I don't know. We could certainly look for the reference. So, yeah, and in fact, maybe we'll just look this week in a concordance, but I'm, I don't know if there's if it's referred to. Who, somebody else had a... Oh, yeah, Norm. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, we talk about do God's people determine or recognize canon, and do we talk... I mean, we agree that they recognize it and don't determine it. In the Old Testament... When the Jews were writing, or the prophets were writing this, how much did they know that they were actually, that this was going to be canon, that they, when they were writing it? Or how did the Jews determine that this was canon? I can't believe that they were all just automatically of one mind. Yeah. And we know in the New Testament it took quite a while to sort it out and figure yeah. out what was actually canon and what wasn't. Yeah, how again, did that I, in the Old Testament? The, the only thing I can point to is some of the passages we went through seem to indicate that they believed, like when you see in Joshua 24, he put his books 
or his writings were put in the books of the Lord. Samuel does the same. There seems to be this understanding, certainly, that Yahweh had spoken to them. In fact, thus saith the Lord occurs many times in these writings. So they, they, they believe that they are speaking for God. And in fact, Jeremiah, I think, has a hundred and, I forget, a hundred, over 135 usages of thus saith the Lord alone. Of course, that's a later writing than Samuel and so forth. But the point being is these men believe that they're writing for God. And I would certainly believe that those whom they ministered to believe they did too, at least some of them. Um, it would, perhaps you would say it's analogous today where you believe this is inspired and part of the canon of God. But, 90% of the people you meet outside our doors, it's just like the Reader's Digest. It has that value to them. Do you know what I mean? Perhaps it was like that. I, I don't know, really. But, again, we did see some evidence that they certainly knew that they were writing Scripture, these men. But to how many of the Israelites knew that and were aware of it, I, I don't know. Yeah, But it's a good thing. It's fun to think about. Could you clarify... Uh when you were talking about the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, one is the Greek and one is the Hebrew? That's right. The Masoretic text is the Hebrew text, okay? And the Septuagint is written in Greek. And the reason why, and remember the Babylonians sacked Judah in 587, 586, whichever date you take. And then the, the people of God are dispersed really throughout the world after the Medo-Persian Empire sacks Babylon. The Jews are allowed home, but not all of them go home. And so they're dispersed throughout the world. So they want to be able to know in the language of the day, which is Greek, some of them are losing their Hebrew skills. And so the Old Testament then was translated into Greek in Alexandria. And the the legend is, is that there were 70 scholars. And uh, I think if I remember the legend right, is that they're all supposed to go in a room and they're all supposed to write uh, their own text and they all came out and they were all the same or something to that effect. I mean, there was some legend there, but the point is it really did come, there was, the Septuagint was really written, and it really was written in Alexandria, Egypt. So the Masoretic text, now that dates, the, some of the earliest that we have date to about 900 A.D. What's so beautiful about the findings at Qumran is that some of the texts of Isaiah we see are 98 to 99% cohere, if you will, or are consistent with the Masoretic text some 1,100 years later. And so it was really a shot in the arm to really the conservative evangelical movement who were taking wax from the theological liberals saying, look, your Masoretic text dates to 900 A.D. And we were able to show through Qumran to say, well, look, it's virtually unchanged for 1,100 years. So it's been extremely well preserved. And so it's, yeah. You mentioned that the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai yeah. uh, debated. Yeah. Did the school of Hillel have the correct take on the canon? Um, I don't know. The issue I know that they were fighting with, I just taught this actually in 1 Corinthians 7, was how to understand the Deuteronomy passage that stated that you could write your wife a certificate of divorce if you were not pleased with her. And the whole take in Deuteronomy, obviously, it makes it clear that it's through marit- marital infidelity. Well, the school of Hillel said, no, it was for any reason, if you, even if you had a, um, if she screwed up your pot roast kind of idea. And Shammai, they said, no, 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 it's not for any reason like that. And so anyway, the whole point is, is Jesus ends up getting in on that argument um, in the New Testament when these 
more than likely these Pharisees that represent each side, they say, and I think it's in Matthew 19, can we divorce our wife for any reason? Let me just turn, let's turn to Matthew 19. I'll just show you real quick. Yeah, in, in uh, Matthew 19.3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And again, so what, what's being reflected there is this uh, notion that the Hallel school said, Well, even if she burns your pot roast, you know, you can say, That's it, I've had it. <laughs> and the school of Shammai says, No, no, no. Well, Jesus enters into the picture, and he ends up explaining that, No, it was from the beginning... God made them male and female and that the male is going to leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's a fascinating passage that we're actually going to get into next week. But again, the debate is over the understanding of Deuteronomy. I believe it's uh, somewhere Deuteronomy 24.1 or something. Let's see if it says. It talks about a certificate of divorce. Yeah, 24.1. There you go. Yep. So that's what they were debating. So yeah, that would have been Hillel. And those two schools, I think the um, founding father of Hillel, that was his actual name, He that rabbi died prior to Jesus or right around Jesus' birth. But Shammai, I think, lived longer. But the point is their schools lived on even after their death. So yeah, those two. So that's exactly, Shammai plays into our understanding of Deuteronomy 19 and so does the school of Hillel. Yep. Uh, Matthew 19, I mean. Yeah, Dina. On that particular issue, the, the divorce issue, yeah. Jesus' teachings were more closely parallel to those of Shammai. Yeah. But most of the time, his, most his teachings were more closely aligned with Hillel. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah that's one time where Shammai had it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shammai certainly tried to goof up the canon, didn't they? Get rid of those books. Yeah. Um, now, friends, next time we're together, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to be. Um, delving into that, the, the next time after that, we're going to be getting into the fall in the garden, and we're going to be getting into the first gospel in uh, Genesis 3.15, okay? And that's going to be an extremely important section. And then we're going to get from there, I think we're going on into the Abrahamic covenant. So what we're going to do is we're going to be delving into text, spending a lot of time in them, and then again, we're going to be kind of bridging huge spans of time in the survey portion, but then we'll be landing and drilling down on some major text. So that's kind of how we're going to proceed. Um, after looking at the syllabus, I thought, you know, I could spend 16 weeks probably just on the Pentateuch, but we'll try to get through the entire uh, Old Testament canon in 16 weeks. So, Well, does anybody have any other thoughts or comments? I want to thank all of you for showing up. I know this is kind of a, it's not the most fun, but I, I wanted to have, at least have all of you have the data and if this issue would come up, now you maybe have a good resource to turn to where you can say to you, lovingly to a Catholic friend that, you know what, um, that's not canonical. And uh, remember, the issue you're arguing about with a Catholic as far as canonicity is concerned is nothing to do with the New Testament. It has to do with the Old. Okay. And again, if they're right, then Paul was wrong and Jesus and the Jews had the wrong canon. Okay. So it's pretty pretty bad case, I think, that they have. Okay. So, friends, we'll see you uh, next Tuesday at the same time. Oh, one more thing before you guys all go. What I was thinking, I wanted to think ahead about the election. Aren't the elections always on a Tuesday? Um, Should we be thinking ahead about that? The last thing I want to do on this election, and I'm not going to say any more than this, is to steer any of you, or I don't want to impede any of you from getting to the polls because I think it's so important, if you know what I'm saying. 
um, would that be a problem on Tuesday? Would, would, you, would you like to cancel for Tuesday because of the election? Jim is waving his head or shaking his head. Is that the appropriate thing to do? I, I don't want to, again, if there's one single person that won't go to the poll because I'm teaching, I, we can, we're not time-bound. We can push this, you know what I mean? We're going to keep teaching this until it's, so what, should we plan on having the election? Let's have the election Tuesday off. Because let's make sure everybody gets to the poll, okay? All right. Let's just set that right now. That way everybody can kind of plan on their calendars and so forth. So anyway, friends, blessings. Thanks for coming.